Thanks, Chanel, and welcome from me to the last public meeting, at least for Tuesday, of the year. Joining for being here, I know that life is a bit stressful at the moment as assignments kind of stack up and exams loom. So thank you for prioritising the time to just sit here for a bit and sit under the word and see what God has to say to us about how we can live for him. Um, then we've been watching the news. Uh, it's sometimes hard to tell with university students, but the Queen died last month. So, um, it was pretty significant, I think, as, as world history goes. Uh, her reign was 70 years. She was the longest serving British monarch of all time. Uh, and the thing I find most peculiar about all that is that most of her subjects, including us, um, have never known a time where she was not their head of state. You see, her reign was long and stable. Now, we're a bit distant from this. We're Australians. We don't really care. We're kind of, oh, okay, okay, the Queen, she's great, but she's died. Life goes on. But I can guarantee you that two things went through the heads of every single British person when the news broke. And in this order, oh, man, that's really sad. Oh, no, the UK is stuffed. <laughs> and that happens, right? And that happens because when you lose a good leader and there's no obvious replacement, fear kicks in. And the future is thrown up into the air. And I think it's true to some extent with every leadership transition, isn't it? There are times of real anxiety because our leaders, what do they do? They give us guidance and direction and they worry about the future so that we don't have to. And so because of that, they kind of keep us emotionally stable. They give us confidence. But when they go, that emotional load, the anxiety about the future that they've been carrying for us, the question of what will be next... It's thrown back onto us, and it can generate a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety. I'm sure you've been in situations where you've had a leader, whether it's at school or church or something like that, move on, uh, and it just really, really starts to make you go, oh, no, what's happening? What's going to go on in the future? And today we finish the book of Deuteronomy. And in these last chapters, we witness the loss of a leader. Moses, the man of God, has led the nation of Israel, not for 70 years, but for almost 40 years, and they have never known a time where he had not led them. The nation came into being under his leadership. And today in Deuteronomy, he dies. That's something we haven't paid much attention to so far in our study of the book. But as you read through Deuteronomy, one of the things that lurks in the background and that you slowly come to realize is that Deuteronomy is Moses' last words. Now, we've seen already at various points throughout the semester uh, that Moses, uh, the Deuteronomy is a series of speeches. It's given to the nation of Israel on the border of the Promised Land just before they enter, all given by Moses. But the thing that we haven't mentioned so far is that they all take place on the same day, the day that Moses dies. And so when we get to chapter 31, what was in the background, it rushes to confront us. And we see it there in the very first verse of the four chapters we're looking at today. So have a look in your Bibles at chapter 31. Verse 1. Then Moses went out and spoke these words to all Israel. I am now 120 years old and I am no longer able to lead you. And like the queen, the one question on every Israelite's lip would have been, what happens next? Because it was Moses who kept us in line. It was Moses who kept us on course. It was Moses who spoke to God face to face, and it was Moses that gave us God's words and God's promises. And so with Moses' death, there is now a big question mark that hangs over the future of Israel. Because will they enter into the land and receive God's blessing, or will they continue to rebel and fall into God's judgment? And the reason this is important for us 
is because of what we've learned so far in the series. Because remember the promises to Abraham. It was going to be through Abraham's offspring, his descendants, that God would bring blessing to all the peoples on the earth. And so Israel's future was the thing that determined all of our futures. Everyone who was not from the nation of Israel. You see, Israel was meant to be the means by which God would reverse the curse of sin and judgment and death and restore blessing to his world. And now here at the last bit of Deuteronomy, we see that Israel's future hangs in the balance. So this should make us concerned. Now Moses, he's not unaware of this. And so as we read through these chapters, what we're going to see is that they basically show us Moses preparing Israel for his death. And we've got a table there in the outlines if you want to follow along and make some notes. Uh, We're going to look at what he does. We're going to look at what he does to prepare Israel for his death. First thing that he does, Moses hands over. He finds a replacement that's aligned with company mission and values. He does the interviews and he passes on the baton. And so we see there in chapter 31, verse 7, uh, Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the presence of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you must go with this people into the land that the Lord swore to their ancestors to give them, and you must divide it among them as their inheritance. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. So he finds a successor. But then he also does some documentation. We've been doing this with the committee at the end of this term, uh, and, and Moses does the same thing, except the stuff that he writes down is probably a bit more significant than 25 constitutional changes. Uh, what does he do? He writes down the law that God gave him that he spoke to Israel. So now they have a record of everything that he had said to them. Now they won't lose the institutional knowledge that Moses had. And what he tells them to do there is he tells them to read it every seven years so that verse 13... They can learn to fear the Lord as long as you live in the land that you're crossing the Jordan to possess. So that's the first thing that Moses does. He does a handover. The second thing he does is strange. He sings. Now, I didn't bother doing the research on this one because I can guarantee you that any book on leadership transition will not tell you to sing to your employees as you leave and walk out the door. So why this weird flex from Moses? Well, we see it in chapter 31, verse 27. What does he say? He turns to the Israelites and he says, For I know how rebellious and stiff-necked you are. If you had been rebellious against the Lord while I am still alive and with you, how much more will you rebel after I die? Assemble before me all the elders of your tribes and all your officials so that I can speak these words in their hearing and call the heavens and the earth to testify against them. For I know that after my death you are sure to become utterly corrupt and to turn from the way I have commanded you. In days to come, disaster will fall on you because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord and arouse his anger by what your hands have made. Now, that's pretty heavy stuff. I'm going to die. You're going to get worse. But just to make sure that the future generations get the memo, he teaches the Israelites a song to sing about their future. And this isn't like kind of like a final sales projection or cost estimate just as he signs off on his last day at the office. It's dismal and it's a firm prediction of what will happen. Uh, And we've got a a rough picture of what it's going to look like. Uh, And here's what it is. Israel will enter the promised land and receive blessing, but their abundance will then lead to complacency, at which point they'll abandon God and worship other gods. Uh, That's the idolatry box up there. And so a jealous God, faithful and caring of his people, actually responds to them in judgment and destroys all but a remnant of them and sends them into exile. 
That's the main thrust of the song. There is a glimmer of hope at the end. He will one day avenge his people with vindication. He'll bring them back. Uh, But overall, uh, the song sort of functions as a testimony against the character of the nation Moses led. That's, That's the emphasis of the song. They are a rebellious nation. And Moses wants them to know that it's only going to get worse after he dies. Now, it might be tempting at this point to think Moses just chucking his fit, right? He's just blaming Israel for his failed leadership. Uh, I had some friends who had a pastor who did exactly that. He basically just laid it out on them, told them that they were the problem, and they just left the church. That's just horrible. That's just a horrible uh, miscarriage of his authority. But that's not what Moses is doing here. Moses loves his God, and Moses loves God's people. And he wants them to follow the word that God gave him to give to them. And so the third thing that he does, we see there in chapter 33, is that he blesses them. Uh, This is the last thing that he does before he walks up the mountain where he will die. Uh, We see it in chapter 33. If you scan your eyes down, he systematically works his way through every tribe of Israel. And he pronounces a blessing on each and every one of them. And each one has to do with their life once they're in the land. So this is an interesting switch in the preparations of Moses. He moves from the scathing words of his song, predicting tragedy in the distant future, and he zooms in on the immediate future and he gives them some encouragement. God will be true to his promises. They will enter the land and enjoy its blessings, at least to begin with. So he hands over, he sings, he blesses, and then he dies. Technically speaking, this isn't something that he does to prepare them. That's just kind of the end point of the story. But it's worthwhile paying attention to how it goes down. In chapter 34, which is the chapter we read, he climbs Mount Nebo. It's on the plains of Moab. And we see there in verse 1 that the Lord showed him the whole land, all of the promised land that he had promised to Abraham's ancestors. And he says to him in verse 4, This is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when I said I'll give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you will not cross over into it. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. Now, there is some positive news. A few verses later, we see that the transition of leadership works. The people listen to Joshua, just as they did to Moses. But that doesn't quite shake the sense of loss we feel that Moses' death causes. Because have a look at how the book finishes. This is in verse 10. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to the whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. So Deuteronomy, it ends on a bittersweet note. It looks at all Moses has done with thankfulness, the miracles, the the, the wonderful things, the plagues that he brought upon Egypt to bring God's people out of slavery and into their own land. But it also acknowledges that he set a high watermark that nobody has ever followed. Sort of like the athlete that gets sick and then recovers but never quite performs at the level that they used to. There's sort of a sense of loss that you always carry around. A sense of what could have been but will never sort of ever get there again. And the nation of Israel, it carries that loss into their future. There's a sense that they're not quite what they used to be and that there's no coming back from this. So despite a successful handover, Moses' prediction that they will go from bad to worse kind of spills over 
And so it doesn't really remove the question mark we had at the beginning of the talk, does it? What will happen to the future of Israel? What do we do with that then? Well, the thing that I want to point out is that we actually can see a lot more going on in these chapters than just Moses doing a handover. Those are the bare events. Uh, But Deuteronomy is not a leadership manual. It's actually the record of a covenant relationship between God and his people. And so we should expect it to tell us something a bit about that relationship. And when we take a closer look, we see just that. We don't just see Moses doing leadery kind of things. We actually see that behind everything, God is sovereignly guiding his people's destiny according to his plan. In other words, there's a leader behind the leader. Now, we know that because when we look through the passages that we've got in front of us, behind almost everything Moses does, it's actually God who's prompting him. And we shouldn't be surprised by that, right? Because Moses isn't just a leader, he's a prophet. And what's a prophet? Well, the two, the two roles have a certain over. Prophets will exercise some level of leadership. But the thing that a prophet has in its, its, uh, its advantage and its distinction is that the prophet is the go-between between God and his people. God would come along and he'd give his words to his prophet, and then the prophet in turn would give those words to God's people. And so if Moses was on an org chart, he's not actually at the top. It might seem like it. It might feel like it. At the very moment where he declares that he's about to die, you're going to go, oh, panic, oh, this is not good. But the true leader of Israel is not Moses. It's God, the one who gives his words to the prophet. And so Moses' death, while significant for the nation, and we don't want to downplay that, it gets worse when he goes, it's not as catastrophic as it might first seem. So flip back your Bibles to chapter 31 again and have a look at verse 2. Moses has said, I'm no longer able to lead you. That's in verse 1. And then look what he says in verse 2. The Lord has said to me, you should not cross the Jordan. Verse 3, the Lord your God himself will cross over ahead of you. He will destroy these nations before you so that you shall dispossess them. And then again in verse 5, it is the Lord who will deliver them to you. Now you might ask, well, hang on, what about Joshua? And that's a fair question. But as we run through the passage, we see that even as Moses commissions Joshua in verse 7 of chapter 31, it's God who summons and commissions him in verse 14, in verse 23. In fact, if we did some Bible flipping, which we won't do just now, we actually can work out that Moses didn't choose Joshua. God did. And he did it back in Numbers chapter 27. So we have a transition of leadership, but the leader behind the leaders remains the same. God is sovereignly steering the course of Israel. What about the song then? Well, if you look at chapter 31, verse 19, we see that it is God who is the one that gives Moses the song. Moses didn't have an original bow in his body. God did all the creative work, wrote the lyrics, gave it to him and said, here's the song, and it's not a song for you, Moses. It's not really Moses' song. It's my song because it will stand as a witness for me against the people of Israel. So again, God is calling the shots. And here's the real clinch. This is the one that really surprised me when I kind of started digging into this. It really hits home when we look at why Moses dies. Because we read chapter 31, verse 2, and we're like, oh, he said he's 120 years old, he's no longer able to lead you, so he must be like the queen, right? He's just kind of getting a bit older, he's past retirement age, he's not making as many public appearances, slowing down, we better go easy on him, you know, make sure that he has his morning coffee and that sort of stuff. But flip over to chapter 34 and have a look at verse 7. Chapter 34, verse 7, we see the same information. Moses was 120 years old when he died, yet his eyes were not weak, nor his strength gone. He's sort of like a Tim Thorburn. He just keeps going. 
Seriously, that guy, the only way he's going to die is if God makes it happen, right? He's just going to keep going and go, he's an energizer buddy. And the same with Moses. So why does he die? It's not because he's old, but we see it at the end of chapter 32. Lots of flipping today, but it is worth it. Go to chapter 32, verse 50, right at the end of the chapter there. 32 verse 50, there on the mountain that you have climbed, you will die and be gathered to your people, just as your brother Aaron died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people. And here's the reason why God gives, verse 51, this is because both of you broke faith with me in the presence of the Israelites at the waters of Meribah Kadesh. He basically sort of didn't obey God, he lashed out in anger, and so God, because he he wasn't regarded as holy, punishes Moses. So verse 52, the end of the chapter, he says, therefore, you will see the land only from a distance, You will not enter the land I am giving to the people of Israel. So Moses' death is not natural. This is God's retirement plan for him. God is judging Moses for his sin. And he is putting him to death. And I want to say that is weirdly comforting. Because what that tells us is that the wheels aren't falling off. God is just progressing his plan for his people And what we see is the leader behind the leader continuing to lead. Now, having acknowledged that, I don't think that removes all of our anxiety that we might be feeling at this particular point in Israel's history. Because even if we have the assurance of God's sovereign hand behind everything that happens in the nation, not everything that we've seen that will happen in the nation's future is particularly comforting, is it? It's not like, well, you know, we're going to turn all of your weaknesses into strengths and your obstacle will become an opportunity and this is just the next phase of your evolution where you fulfill your unrealized expectations and potentials. No, the future of Israel is actually looking pretty, pretty dim, isn't it? The immediate future looks great, it's blessed, but like Moses said, they're going to go from bad to worse and eventually forsake God and be cast into exile. And so the question comes, what is the leader behind the leader doing with this nation? And we see the answer in Moses' song. What God is doing is he's teaching them who he is and why they need him. Have a look at how the song begins. This is in chapter 33, verse 3. Sorry, it's chapter 32, verse 3. I was like, that's not right. Here it is, chapter 32, verse 3. I will proclaim the name of the Lord, O praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. Now have a look at the comparison with his people in verse 5. They are corrupt and not his children. To their shame they are a warped and crooked generation. Is this the way you repay the Lord, you foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father, your creator, who made you and formed you? You see, the Lord describes himself as Israel's rock, a God who is faithful and true to his people, who will always act righteously. And as the song progresses and we go through that cycle that we saw before, right? Blessing, complacency, idolatry, judgment, vindication. What we see is God showing Israel that he's not only Israel's rock, but the only rock. When they're blessed, he's the one who blesses them. When they turn away to false gods and desert the rock that fathered them, he's the one that judges them. When he sends them into exile and then relents and brings them home, it's so that they will know that it is him that does it. And him alone. So have a look at verse 36. This is towards the end of the song. And we actually start to see something of what he's getting at. Chapter 36. Sorry. Chapter 32, verse 36. So many numbers. 
The Lord will vindicate his people and relent concerning his servants when he sees their strength is gone and no one is left, slave or free. He will say, now where are their gods? The rock they took refuge in. The gods who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings. Let them rise up to help you. Let them give you shelter. See what he's doing? He's saying they can't get it. They can't help you. His conclusion, verse 39, see now that I myself am he. There is no God besides me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal. And no one can deliver out of my hand. And so the whole purpose of the song is to help Israel see, as its history unfolds, just who God is. It's sort of like one of those movie trailers that you watch and it kind of gives away the whole of the movie and it's like, all right, well, I don't have to go to the cinemas, save me 20 bucks right there. Well, that's what this song is. It's a reference point, such that at whatever point in history Israel finds itself on that timeline of blessing, complacency, idolatry, judgment, vindication, they'll be able to say, oh... That's what God is doing. All my arrows are gone. There were arrows from blessing and complacency and idolatry. But basically every point in that history, they would be able to see that here is our God, the only God, the God who is faithful and just. And if we want our future secured, it won't be because of us. We are rebellious. We are faithless. We need him. Not Moses. Him. And so what we see is God sovereign over the future of his people moving them to understand who he is so that they will cling to him. Now we have one last question to ask to bring this home, and it's this. How does God do that? How does God take them through that process and end at a place of vindication? Because they are persistently rebellious. And the major note of their history, both now as they look forward and then when we get to the end and we look back, is rebellion. And we saw in the song there is a glimmer of hope. It's it's that one day God will avenge his people, but that is in the distant future, and it's really hard to see how that's going to happen. But there's something that Moses says earlier in Deuteronomy that's going to help us pin this down, because he tells us how he'll do it. He tells us that God will secure the future of his people counterintuitively by sending another prophet. And I'll be nice to you. I'll throw this up on the screen. This is in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. The prophet Moses makes a prophet about the coming of another prophet. That's what it says. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. Now it's pretty easy as you read through the book of Deuteronomy to kind of like gloss over that. Because in the first instance, what Moses is talking about here is just the string of prophets that God is going to raise up after him that will speak God's word to the nation and point them back to the law that the great prophet Moses had given them. And every single one of those prophets was just going to say, be faithful to God, go back to the law. But when we get to the New Testament and we get to the book of Acts chapter 3, we see that this prophecy is not just sending prophets plural. It's actually talking about the sending of a great prophet like Moses, singular. And that's really helpful to know because it helps us understand the book of Deuteronomy and why it ends the way that it does. Because it says that there has never been a prophet like Moses. And what it's declaring is that at the point of writing, at some point further down Israel's Israel's history, the prophet like Moses that Moses had prophesied about had not yet come. But what the Apostle Peter says to us in Acts chapter 3, and you should turn there now, I reckon, we're going to have a look at this. What the Apostle Peter says in Acts chapter 3 is that that prophet has now come. Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Acts is the fifth book of the Bible. It's the one straight after the Gospels. 
It's the one that tells us the history of the early church and how Jesus starts to conquer with his gospel. And have a look at what he says. This is Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Uh, and key piece of context here, Peter is speaking to the people of Israel. He's in Jerusalem. He tells them, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. So here's the restoration of God's people. Here's the vindication that was alluded to at the end of the song. And he continues to say in verse 20, And that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus, so he names him. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. One, of course, is Moses. And we see that because we keep reading in the next verse. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. And you must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Now I mentioned before that Peter is speaking to the Israelites. And here's why it's important. Have a look at verse 25 and 26. This is the end of this passage. And you, people of Israel, are heirs of the prophet and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, that's the great prophet Jesus, he sent him first to you, Israel, by turning each of you from your wicked ways. So I've got a question for the person next to you. And I think I put this up on the screen because I want to be nice. Uh, Verse 25 to 26, what is Peter saying about Israel's future? 30 seconds with the person next to you. What is Peter saying about Israel's future? All righty. That should be enough time to whet the appetite. Um, What do you reckon? What's he saying? I think some of the key words you want to pay attention to is bless you. Um, I think you want to pay attention to the fact that there's a promise to Abraham, uh, that they're heirs of the prophet and of the covenant God made with your fathers, which is the covenant of the law that we see in Deuteronomy. I think what he's saying here is that in Jesus, the blessing that God promised to Abraham's descendants, the thing that you've been searching for as you enter into the promised land, has finally been made available. And it's not whether or not you're in the land, and it's not whether or not you've listened to the words of the prophet Moses to obey the law. It's whether or not you've listened to the words of the prophet Jesus, the greater prophet, the prophet that Moses pointed to. And what did Jesus tell us? Not to obey the law, but to repent of our sins and find forgiveness. Because it's only then, if you see earlier on in chapter 3, that times of refreshing can come upon us. You see, that's how God secures the future of his people. The mechanics, they're heaps detailed. We can keep going into more and more about how Jesus just does that. But here's the vindication that he promises. He sends his prophet Jesus to speak his words of grace in the gospel. And he enables us to come to him and no longer face his judgment, but instead receive his blessing. Not just today, not just tomorrow, not just for the rest of our lives, but into eternity. But what about us? This is talking about Israel. Have another look at those verses, chapter 3, verse 25 to 26. What do you notice about where we fit into the picture? You see, the words that God's prophet Jesus speaks, he speaks to Israel, but he only speaks to them first. That's verse 26. And the implication is he speaks to the nations as well, you and me. You see, it's because through Abraham's offspring that all peoples on the earth will be blessed. And so the great prophet goes to Israel first, but by implication then to everyone else. And that is why the future of Israel matters to us. Because remember, your future is wrapped up in their future. Israel was to be the vehicle of God's blessing to the world. 
And if they crashed, then all hope of a world restored to the blessing of relationship with God was just gone down the gurgler. But what we see here in these verses is that Israel's uncertain future is now finally assured. And it's assured in the coming of the prophet Jesus. And that changes our entire attitude to our own future. Uh, now, we've got to be careful here, I think, because when we talk about our ex- existential fear of the future, uh, we tend to think exam marks in a couple of weeks. Uh, we might think a bit further ahead. We might think of job prospects or, or, or whether or not we'll find that special somebody and get married and have a family. But I'm not talking about that future. I'm talking about your ultimate future. I'm talking about the future that determines which side of God you will stand on when he sends his Messiah from heaven to restore all things. Because will you stand forgiven or will you stand condemned? What will determine which side of God you stand on at that point? Well, it's whether or not you've listened to the words of the prophet that he sent. And that prophet Jesus speaks the words to repent and believe. Because now in Jesus there is someone greater than Moses. Someone who doesn't just talk to God face to face, but is himself God. Someone who doesn't just bring the law like Moses did, which we've seen in previous weeks, was never going to solve our sin problem. But somebody who brings us the gospel, which has the power not just to forgive us, but to change us in such a way that our rebellious hearts flip and we can now obey him. And let me tell you, that changes everything. Because once you take that great specter of God's judgment out of your horizon and you completely remove it, now whatever happens to you, your little futures, if you will, your future is assured. And I mean everything. I mean something as small as the anxiety of failing a unit this semester or the fear of never finding a partner or something as terrifying as being diagnosed with a terminal illness. Whatever happens, big or small, Jesus, as the leader of God's people, assures our future. And so as we finish our series in the book of Deuteronomy... We can say with confidence that under Jesus' leadership, we stand in a very different place to the Israelites who stood under Moses. Because instead of a vague promise in the distant future in uncertain circumstances, what we have is a guarantee that today our future is assured. We are forgiven. And what awaits us is certain. Eternal life in a new world with our faithful and just God forever. Amen. Now I'll give you a moment to let that settle in. I've got a couple of minutes and one final announcement. So I want to invite Ben up if that's okay. I've got a question for him. Ben, you've been with the Christian Union for four years now, Mm. but things are changing soon. Mm. Can you tell us what's happening? Yeah. Um, so uh, some of you may be aware that a, um, a church nearby, St. Matthew's uh, Uni Church, has been without a pastor for a little bit of time. They've been looking for someone to step into that role. And so just at the end of last week, um, have accepted that, um, which is exciting but also sad. It's bittersweet because it means I'll be uh, finishing up with the Christian Union at the end of this year. Yeah. Mm. Thanks, brother. Really sad news, but really exciting news. Mm. Um, One of the things we do at the Christian Union is we send people. We don't expect anybody to stick around. We actually just prayed for Tom Conyers before. He's now in Singapore. We sent him to go off and do work elsewhere. 
Um, and so we will mourn your loss. You're much loved around here and you've done so much for us in growing and changing us. Um, but I want to say to us that not only will we be sad, but we should also be rejoicing for St. Matt's Uni Church. Um, church needs a pastor. I think you're going to be fantastic for it. And really excited to see the leader behind the leaders steering things around and putting people where he would have them. Mm-hmm. Now, in God's kindness, we have a, a, a thing on leadership transition in, in our yeah, passage. Did you plan that? that I, I didn't, <laughs> didn't, didn't plan it. We but, only found out it was happening last Thursday. Yes, by that point, this passage is already locked in. Th- this so. has happened very fast. But, but not only is it a really good thing, it's also a really bad thing, right? Because here's how you're going to misapply Deuteronomy 31 to 34. You're going to go, oh, it's about a leader leaving and we can be confident in God. And so Ben is a leader and he's leaving so we can be confident in God. But I just want to say this with all due respect. Ben is not Moses. (laughs) Matt is Moses. (laughs) Brother, you can go. (laughs) Rosemary, who's also leaving, is not Moses. Who's Moses? Jesus is Moses. (laughs) This is the danger of always asking a rhetorical question. I don't want to make anyone feel bad, but, but that, that, that's where the passage leads us, right? It's, it's got nothing to do with human leadership. It's got everything to do with how God steers his people through his chosen Messiah. The, the passage uses the word prophet here, right? And it's because he steers his people under the full certainty and assurance and power of Jesus that when things happen that are very similar to this passage, like a leader moving on, or we can... Or dying. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody said you did to us just yet. Don't get ahead of yourself. Um, we can actually be confident that whatever God has in store, both for us at the CU and for uh, Uni Church at, at St. Matt's, mm-hmm. that what he is doing is good, that what he's doing will see the prosperity of his people and, most importantly, the outgoing of his glory, not just to Israel but to the nation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just wanted to kind of leap on that to make sure we didn't misunderstand it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure there'll be lots of things that people want to kind of say or ask questions of. I'll, I'll kind of, you can go and do that afterwards. But, mm-hmm. but maybe I'll pray for you mm-hmm. uh, and, and then we'll, we'll close up the meeting. Mm-hmm.